0: Welcome to Salem, Investigating the Witch Trials. Brought to you by History Extra, I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This is Episode 7. Most of us have had to deal with a difficult neighbour at some point in our life. But in a town like Salem, where your daily survival was dependent on those you lived with, community tensions could run far deeper than noise complaints or the height of hedges. We spoke in an earlier episode about how Salem felt under threat from the wider world. Terror and paranoia generated by attacks from Native Americans, neighbouring French Catholics and an unforgiving environment. But today we'll be exploring how there were also tensions within. Salem was made up of a dense web of social connections, not all of which were harmonious. In fact, it was a community riven with fault lines that threatened to open up into great chasms of conflict. Could tensions between members of the community help explain who was accused of demonic activity, and by who? Historian of witchcraft, Ronald Hutton.
2: If the community comes down on somebody, it's not so much because they're magical or because they're charismatic or they're intelligent, it's because they don't fit in. They're the neighbours from hell. They're the people who curse. They're the people who are ill-tempered. They're the people who seem malevolent. The root of witch-hunting ultimately is interpersonal antagonism. It's neighbours falling out with each other. It's people not fitting into communities because they scare the community. And given the fact that humans have real trouble across the world in dealing with capricious fortune – in other words, very few humans like to believe that anything's just bad luck – there has to be a meaning for it. Blaming a neighbour is one of the standard human tactics for coping.
0: I asked Ronald about the types of communities that most commonly witness witchcraft trials, and Salem fits into a familiar template.
2: Witch hunting is concentrated in the more small-enclosed community simply because those communities depend upon very intimate face-to-face relationships. They simply live closer together with fewer people and they depend on each other. And so there's this kind of uh, circuit system or web of relationships where everything goes right, the communities work but when something goes wrong, the entire community is affected. That's why witch hunting, unless it's driven from above by a ruler, is very rare in towns and cities.
0: Salem Village was indeed one of these small communities in which people knew each other incredibly well. And according to Stacy Schiff, author of The Witches, Salem, 1692, this familiarity aided the spread of accusations.
3: It's very easy for an accusing girl to say, oh, Sarah Good has a rip in her coat, or this woman has a blemish on her thigh. They knew each other intimately, and they know each other's histories. And there's an enormous amount of recycled gossip in these accusations, without which, the, without which of course, you couldn't have pulled this kind of vilification off. It's much easier to say, you know, I know this person has done this thing or is bearing this scar or had this ex-wife who said this about him when you're when you're privy to all of that chatter in the background. So, yes, there's an enormous amount of familiarity. At one point, two girls are asked to identify someone, and they're not able to. And fortunately, I think Ann Putnam is the one who's able to say, I know who that is. And there are various moments where reason almost seems to intervene. And then someone inevitably manages to deliver the body blow to reason by saying, I happen to know this incriminating piece of evidence, or I happen to have seen this particular um, this particular oddity. And then immediately everyone re-engages with the narrative.
0: And even as accusations spread beyond Salem to neighboring towns, these connections continued. Historian of early America, Kathleen Brown.
4: All of the neighboring villages and towns, um, Marblehead, Ipswich, Andover, Peabody, they're all connected these are you know people who certainly know of each other they might have lived near each other they might be connected through family so the connections i think are pretty dense for those northern new england towns um so they are there are connections they are connected to each other but i don't think it's accurate to say everybody knew everybody certainly the young girls and the Teenagers and young women who are doing the accusing, they start with people they know, but they pretty quickly branch out to people they might never have met, but only have heard of. Um, and that's one of the things that's very baffling. So, some of the older women who are accused, when they're brought into these interrogations where they confront the young people who are accusing them, they're just, you know, confounded because they've never met, you know, they've never crossed paths with these young people before. So what I would say is everybody knew somebody who knew everybody. You know, the, what is it, seven degrees of separation. I mean, everybody knew of everybody, but they might not know people directly. And there's a lot of intersections. Even if you just look at the way the accusations spread across this region of Northern New England, these are definitely communities with
0: strong connections. To try and track how accusations spread, historians have attempted to map out this dense web of social connections, sometimes in quite literal ways. Historian Owen Davies told me more.
5: One of the interesting aspects about the source materials uh, for the Salem trial uh, is that it's allowed sociologists, geographers and historians to try and explore the spatial geographical relationships between the individuals involved i think that's a really profitable way of looking at it i mean the 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 main work on that was done in the 1970s and i think quite a lot of it still holds up there's there's danger of trying to explain it away through land ownership land holding and uh, and spatial relations so it's not a it it doesn't explain it but it it helps us understand uh, the dynamics and how it happened when it happened why didn't this happen in 1680 you know but I don't think we can understand, you know, the dynamics of witch trials without understanding what is what is the relationship between people. You could say the same thing about witchcraft disputes in the nineteenth century, early twentieth century, or, or disputes you know going on across the world today. Is you know quite a lot of it is about the ways in which people interact with each other spatially. You know, one of the things I you know often talk about is why is it women who are often accusing other women? And of course, one explanation is where do women. Uh, in a sense, come into contact with each other outside the household. You know, it's it's doing what tasks is it that bring women together in that society. And that has a spatial element to it. So if women in charge of the dairy and someone, another woman enters into the dairy, something bad happens, that's a relationship between two women in a space, you know. Uh, and so there's a really interesting field there about this gender and spatiality and witchcraft accusations, which you, you can see in Salem, you see it, in many, many other witchcraft accusations and trials.
0: In order to make a convincing witchcraft accusation against someone, it obviously helped to know them, or at very least to have encountered them. But what about community tensions as a motivator for accusations? It makes sense that existing neighbourhood grievances might help lead to finger-pointing, and Salem had plenty of those. Professor Marion Gibson.
6: And certainly it's a really tense community. Yeah, they're under a lot of pressure, but they're also quite fractious people. They do like to argue. These, these are hard-headed individuals. They have gone all the way around the world to found themselves a new church, a new religion, and to run their own affairs. And they're all pretty strong-minded. And that, of course, doesn't always lead to happiness when you get an entire community of people who all have their own really strong opinions and aren't shy about expressing them to each other.
0: And according to Stacy Schiff, this was also an immensely litigious society. Salemites were no stranger to a court case.
3: I, I'm hard-pressed to name a family who hasn't been in court in the previous years. And those can be for minor offenses, um, like questions of borders, and they can be for major offenses as well. There's a great deal of robbery, there's a great deal of physical assault, there's a tremendous amount um, in the court papers on actually all of the infractions which, this, um, which are true of these families, a lot of that clearly is recycled through the Salem accusations.
0: The idea of accusations being motivated by long-standing neighbourly grievances is something that Marion also expressed to me.
6: I have sympathy with them, but I do also think it was a way of picking out people in the community that didn't like, something that Puritans did tend to be known for, um, and getting rid of them. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, that... that a simple argument with a neighbour could turn into you wanting that neighbour dead. But it does happen. Things do get out of hand. People do get into situations where they feel the only thing to do is to go to the magistrate and complain about their neighbour. And if that to them being hanged, well, so be it then. And I think it was a situation like that. We don't
7: always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel history historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring. Need to hire? You need indeed.
0: Added to this, you'll remember from our earlier episode that Puritanism placed a high value on conformity. This was not a community that was sympathetic to those who stepped outside its strict moral and social boundaries. So let's talk more specifically about some of these grievances. First up, let's go back to where all of this started – with an outbreak of fits and afflictions in the household of Reverend Samuel Parris. Paris's appointment as minister had been controversial, pushed through by the Putnam family. The congregation was split over his preaching. The minister had also rubbed some Salemites up the wrong way over negotiations about his income. Many deemed him hard-headed and grasping. The whole thing had come to a head in a bitter standoff over the delayed delivery of firewood which Paris believed the community owed him as part of his yearly payment. Stacey Schiff suggests that it's no coincidence that it was in the Paris household against this backdrop of community antagonism that supernatural activity first broke out.
3: That a couple of children who feel that their father is at odds with the community, who feel, who know that there have been parishioners tramping in with grievances of various kinds to dispute with their father, repeatedly over the course of a very cold winter, who maybe harbored some fear um, that the house which was cold was going to get colder because the firewood might not be delivered. Um, it, it makes sense that those girls might develop some kind of anxiety or some kind of affliction. And the crucial part being that whatever whatever is afflicting them is something that they can't articulate and that therefore it is expressed somatically. And that's the part there, there we can't figure out what it was, but we can tell. We, we don't know what afflicted them, but we know something obviously caused this, this intense distress.
0: The Paris issue was in fact part of a larger division within the community. At the heart of many local tensions stood the Putnam clan, the family who'd advocated for the minister's appointment. The Putnams were a large, influential family who'd been engaged in legal disputes and conflicts with several other members of the community down the decades. Stacey Schiff:
3: There are a number of people who have a great deal to be gained by the trials continuing, and Thomas Putnam or the Putnam household um, is high on that list. They've they've lost a court case recently. They have lost a number of relatives recently. They're they're feeling rather despondent or re- rather desperate. He he implies early on that that there's something greater, that there's a conspiracy behind this. There's something greater at work than simply than, than simple New England
0: witchcraft. And it's interesting to note that Thomas's twelve year old daughter Anne became one of Salem's most prolific accusers, incriminating up to sixty two people. Stacey Schiff
3: Anne Putnam is um, among the first accusers. She she starts to suffer afflictions as soon as nearly as soon as the girls in the Paris household do. And she's the most um, equal opportunity accuser. Um, I think she accuses nearly all the people who hang. I think with two exceptions, she accuses everyone who will hang. Her father seems to play a, a somewhat, um, a somewhat meddlesome role here. He seems he if he wasn't submitting names to her, he was certainly encouraging her in the accusations.
0: In fact, several people who had bad blood with the Putnams found themselves accused in 1692. One of the family's historic enemies was George Burroughs, that unpopular former minister who'd been summoned back from Maine to stand trial, the one who had recited the Lord's Prayer on the Gallows before his execution. In the early 1680s, while he was Salem's minister, Burroughs had borrowed money from John Putnam to pay for the funeral of his wife but he'd failed to repay the loan and left Salem shortly afterwards. Alongside his debts, Burroughs had also failed in his role as minister to settle feuds within the community. He had made even more enemies through his reputation for cruelty and domestic violence. Marion Gibson.
6: Although he's a very godly figure in one way, he's he's also known for arguments within his own marriages and and his wives, his previous wives. Um, had said that, that he had attacked them, he'd abused them, he'd treated them harshly. So it does seem that in a number of cases, people are being accused because they're known to the community as people who are not living well in Puritan terms. There's, there's something wrong in their lives. Maybe they stand out for those reasons.
0: The 12-year-old Ann Putnam was one of 30 people to testify against Burroughs. She claimed that the ghosts of his dead wives had materialised reporting from beyond the grave how Burroughs had murdered them by witchcraft. His reputation for domestic cruelty clearly hadn't been forgotten, despite the fact that he'd left the community almost a decade earlier. According to Ronald Hutton, it wasn't unusual for witchcraft accusations to be founded on long-festering issues.
2: And the individuals who are suspected tend to be those who have personal quarrels with those who think they're bewitched and they can fall into all sorts of categories. They tend often to be middle-aged or elderly because suspicions take decades to develop. The only reason why you don't get young witches being accused is because uh, you start being suspected when you're about 20, and it's when you're in your 40s that things really explode because they take time to build up.
0: I asked Marion Gibson, Could we identify a similar pattern in the accusations against any other people at Salem?
6: Some of the people who are accused are quite turbulent people. Um, So Giles Corey, for example, is is somebody who's previously been accused of beating to death one of his own farmhands. He's quite a violent individual and he doesn't really contest this. Um, The the man did die after Giles had punished him for for what he said were, were wrongdoings on the farm. So some of the people are, they're probably kind of awkward. They're probably what Americans are called a bit ornery. Um, They're a little bit difficult, maybe. And some of them have quite violent histories. Sometimes they're people against whom violence has been done. So historians have looked at the figure of Bridget Bishop, for example, And learned that in one of her earlier marriages, when she was Bridget Oliver, she had complained about her husband attacking her. So she may have again been somebody who stood out in the community, not in a way that she would have wanted, but in a way that other people noticed.
0: Just to return to Giles Corey for a minute. Corey would eventually be pressed to death for refusing to enter a plea. His case is also interesting because it highlights something even more difficult to explain that sometimes accusations went beyond neighbourly grudges, and people accused their own family members. Giles was not the first suspected witch in the Corey household. Before suspicion fell on him, a warrant was issued for the arrest of his wife, Martha. Shortly afterwards, Giles had confided in a minister that he had perceived Martha, quote, "...to kneel down on the hearth as if she were at prayer, but heard nothing." The implication being that she was not praying at all, but casting spells. Corey later recanted his claims, but he was just one of several men who cast suspicion on their own wives. And what's really interesting is that sometimes people also pointed blame at those who held the power within their own households. For example, the elderly patriarch George Jacobs, who was hanged in August, was accused by his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter. But as Marion reveals, perhaps this shouldn't be so surprising.
6: The family is more than just a bunch of people who live together in the early modern period. They work together as well. So, you know, often there'll be a family farm and everybody will have tasks on the farm. You know, some people look after the chickens, some people look after the dairy, some people do the agricultural work in the fields, some people will go to market to sell the farm produce. They all work together. So it's like this environment where you never get away from these people. There's a home working element to all of this. And if people do fall out with each other, that's perhaps not surprising because there's so many things they can get into conflict over. They can say, you know, you didn't charge enough for that butter. I spent months, you know, raising those cows and I go out every morning in the dark and milk them and you've gone to market and sold this stuff cheap because you say it's going off. And that's just such an easy argument to get into. And when you add on top of that, you know, you haven't done the chores or, you know, you, you said I'd done a bad thing and you told Goody so-and-so next door that I was a bad husband. Well, there are lots of things to fight about there. The family's not just a, a, a family unit, it's an economic unit and it's a religious unit as well, where the man is supposed to govern it and everybody in the family is supposed to do what he says. And you can just imagine the kind of tensions that that generates.
0: So could it be that simple? People spotted an opportunity and cynically invented accusations as a way of getting back at neighbors or family members that had antagonized them in the past? I asked Marion for her opinion on this.
6: I don't think these are cynical accusations. I, I think it's it's a really sensible and easy looking explanation. But when you look a bit harder, it turns out that that doesn't really work. They have so many different motivations to believe that there are witches. And I think they do it out of good conscience, actually. I think they really believe that members of their family have turned to witchcraft or that their neighbour has become a witch. And it pains them. It upsets them quite often. So I think it's easy to say that, that maybe it's all about fights over land or it's all just an excuse for something else. But I think when you look at the historical evidence that doesn't really hold up.
0: And not everyone who was accused fits the profile of neighbourhood antagonist
6: that in a number of cases, people are being accused because they're known to the community as people who are not living well in Puritan terms. There's there's something wrong in their lives. Maybe they stand out for those reasons. But in other cases, people seem to have been quite mainstream. Rebecca Nurse, for example, you know, she's, she's a church member. She's a godly woman. She's an older woman. She's in her 70s. By the time she's accused of witchcraft, nobody really has a bad word to say about Rebecca Nurse. And it's not really clear why she gets accused. So I think you have to look at a range of factors in each case. There isn't a, a lovely one-size-fits-all for witches. You know, this person is a witch because they're difficult. Yes, yeah, some of them are. But then on the other hand, this person is a witch because they're lovely. <laughs> How does that work?
0: So for every George Burroughs that you could argue was accused for causing trouble, there was a respectable Rebecca Nurse. Clearly, it's too simplistic to claim that all the accusations at Salem were simply old grievances cynically recycled through a new crisis. But I do think that understanding the underlying social tensions that were bubbling under the surface certainly helps us to untangle how the crisis erupted in the way it did and perhaps why some, if not all, of the accused suddenly found their community turned against them. On the next episode, we'll be asking... What made women more likely to be accused of witchcraft? Salem Investigating the Witch Trials is made by the team behind BBC History Magazine and the History Extra podcast. It's written and produced by me, Ellie Cawthorn. Production and sound engineering is by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Fact-checking by Josette Reeves. Our editor is Rob Attar and our content director is Dave Musgrove. For more history podcasts, on a variety of subjects, head to historyextra.com forward slash podcast.